again. Every hour. On the hour. Huffing and puffing. Look, Doctor, I know science comes first. But that thing is ridiculous. For six hours straight. Every hour on the hour. Good afternoon, you're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Franklin Rock. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. And I'm Brian Gerke. Coming up on this week's show, we'll be taking a look at current events in the world of science and technology. Also joining us today is Peter Grimmins, who'll be talking to Tom Standage on his book, The Turk, an 18th century chess playing machine. In addition, you can find out all the cool things you can do with EndNote. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous Question of the Week, right here on Berkeley Grocks. Back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. Leaving me, for those of you keeping score at home, as Brian Gerke. Ah, uh, for those of you keeping score at home, it is indeed, what, a tie game right now? A I'm tie not game? sure. What kind of game? Yeah, yeah it's a okay. tie. <laughs> Nobody's winning. Nobody's winning, although the odds makers in Vegas... We're all losing. Everybody's losing. Oh, except for the people who are interested in science, because every week here we give them science. Yes, everybody's a winner. Indeed. Uh, so what do we have for those lucky winners out there who want to know about science? Uh, so we may have found a possible way to cure cancer, actually. So we can cross one more killer, I guess. Wow, yeah. so I can go back to eating bacon and An stuff. old goal of science. Yes. So uh, some researchers at Wake Forest University have discovered a mouse that seemed to uh, be cancer-proof. So they've, they've discovered the mouse, or they've, they've created this mouse? They uh, discovered by accident, actually. Oh, really? So they were doing some experiments where they injected a colony of them with uh, sarcoma cells. And they found one mouse that had this ability, amazing ability to kill off these cancer cells even after repeated injections. That's interesting. And do they know why it was able to do this? Uh, they haven't figured it out, but th- what they did is they uh, bred it with some other mice, and for up to seven generations, they've been able to sustain this characteristic, and these subsequent mouses have been able to uh, kill these cancer cells, not just uh, sarcoma, but other types as well. Huh, that's that's interesting. Is it just a, a function of like the type of cancerous cells that they were injecting, perhaps? So the, the prevailing notion right now is that they think these tumor cells have some protein or some factors that's diffusing out that somehow the immune system can recognize, mm-hmm. and it sends these macrophages to uh, destroy them. Well, this might just be, uh, again, like specific to this particular type of cancerous cell that they're using because there's it all ty- be. different types of cancers. It um, it's really interesting. But So for it seems to be consistent with uh, different types of cancers, not just the uh, sarcoma. There's good hope that maybe we can transfer this ability to humans at some point now that we have the human genome figured out. And in the meantime, the mice can smoke all they want. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Hook them yeah. on drugs. So uh, this actually comes from our favorite journal. Oh, no. Not our favorite journal. It's not, our favorite journal. Not PNAS. PNAS. Oh, my. That would be the yeah. Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, for those of you, again, keeping score at home. Yes, indeed. Yes. Although PNAS is a much more punchy name, I think. Yeah, it's about curing cancer, I guess. 
So in case we can't uh, cure cancer with mice, we might be able to cure it eventually with stem cells. Ah, our favorite stem, stem cells. Our favorite stem cells, the, uh, the ethical dilemma of stem cells. Right, right. In which uh, one must kill an embryo in order to extract the stem cells. Right. Well, those are just uh, the embryonic stem cells. Exactly, right? yes. And also the adult example. ones. Adult stem cells. And the ad- adolescent ones as but well, it, right? It now appears that it may be possible to get embryonic stem cells without actually killing off what would normally be uh, defined as an as embryo, an embryo oh. using mm. uh, parthenogenesis, ah, the process by which an egg begins to replicate itself without having been fertilized mm-hmm. by simply keeping both sets of chromosomes. And usually the egg kicks out one set of chromosomes and then uh, is fertilized by sperm and, mm-hmm. and starts to divide in that way. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a method in which you can stop that ejection of the second set of chromosomes and induce the egg to begin begin dividing. So and is this something that happens naturally or we have to induce it? It has to be induced by uh, some sort of electrical procedure done to the egg. Hmm. Uh, but this then allows people, for the first time ever, people have now extracted stem cells from parthenogenic egg, and they've lived for a few days. They haven't lived indefinitely yet. So mm-hmm. the next goal is to get these to live indefinitely. And then you can get a stem cell line and use it for therapeutic purposes. The only problem being that the sort of most obvious therapeutic purposes are, are those in which you use them for therapy on the, the donor, mm-hmm. and this limits it to females, right. females. pre-menopausal females, right. basically. Right. But it's at least interesting, and these things, of course, can be used for, for research on the ways in which cells develop, and then possibly to, to figure out what causes cancer and other various diseases of that sort. Yeah. Hmm. So Well, that's that's really cool. I mean, but it could be used for, I guess, men, because you just have to denucleate the egg and then put in, say, males. That's then a clone, cloning version. Right. Um, and then have it be parthenogenic. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So it'd be interesting. So if people want to find out more about this, they can look in the journal Stem Cells, Uh volume 21, page 152. (laughs) All right, and so now it's time for the Eye of the Tiger. Is it a kung fu flick? I thought no, it was the that's from that's from Rocky. Oh, Rocky. Rocky one, right? Five, three, three. three? I don't know. Twenty-seven. It's kind, of, it's, kind of, it's kind of a blur. It's all about <laughs> a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of boxing. Yeah. yeah. Well, oddly enough, uh, Eye of the Tiger and Tiger's Eye might have a little bit in common. In fact, Tiger's Eye is a nice mineral rock, and uh, Rocky is probably a rock head. Um, <laughs> but so these uh, these uh, minerals, gems, which are called Tiger's Eye, mm-hmm. were uh, quite precious at one time. They looked like a tiger's eye in terms of their reflection. Hence the name. Hence the name, right? Have the little brown reflection, and mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting. Uh, this was this was quite the gem back in the mid-1870s, but when huge stores that were discovered in South Africa in about 1880s, the price of these things went down to be semi-precious. But one of the interesting things about this tiger's eye was uh, people were wondering, how did it get its uh, brilliant uh, reflective properties? Mm-hmm. And early on in the 1800s, when it was first discovered, the uh, mechanism that was proposed was one called a pseudomorphism. Pseudomorphism. Right. And that's where basically the crystals of quartz begin to form in the same shape as the material that it's invading during, say, like a cooling process. So sort of templating somehow. Yeah. So it's sort of replacing atom by atom, they thought, the material that was originally there. Uh-huh. So this was like the widely held view for the longest time, and if you go look in a geology textbook, what you're going to find is the textbook example of pseudomorphism is tiger's eye, and that was widely held. Mm-hmm. But it's turned out that that long-held belief has been overturned. Overturned? By a recent Shattered. Study. Shattered by a group at Penn State, led by Donald Fisher and uh, Patrick Heaney. They've shown that it is not pseudomorphism, it is in fact 
uh, another process in which it's just basically crystallization together. Oh, crystallization? Yeah, so they basically just co-polymerize in some way. Uh-huh, and somehow that bends the light, refracts in a way that you have these brilliant colors. Right, basically the quartz crystals form in these that are consistent with just basically cooling together with mm-hmm. uh, the other compounds that mm-hmm. are in there. And it forms these sort of long, elongated crystals in the, in the rock, and that causes the uh, sort of refraction patterns that you see. Uh, but the interesting thing is that no one really looked at this because it was such a widely held belief and no one thought to challenge it. And the techniques that they used, X-ray and all this sort of stuff, have been around for a long time. That's true. But uh, nobody's really used it to look at this. And in fact... In fact, it's wrong. It's wrong. So well, quick, cha- change the text. Yeah, it's <laughs> in there. Black marker. Tear out the pages. We should burn them. Burn all the geology textbooks. I, I think that, that is certainly called for. That would be very pleasant. That would rock. <laughs> Well, uh, according to, I guess, the Smithsonian uh, National Museum of National History, this fellow Jeffrey Post, who's a director there, says he's he's tickled that they're going to have to revise all these geology textbooks. Just tickled. Yep. So save up your copies. They're, they're obsolete. They'll be worth something someday. Indeed. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Coming up next, Peter Crimmins will join us with an interview with Tom Standage about his book, The Turk the 18th century chess playing machine. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Bertha Grox, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, chess-playing automata have a wide and varied history going back hundreds of years. Peter Crimmins joins us today to give us this story on one such 18th century chess-playing machine called the Turk. Drop a quarter into the slot. 
Now the wooden grandmother in the cabinet looks warily at you, turns her head in pondering your fate, and delivers her prophecy on a little card. Grandmother tells me, You are a very sensitive person and a very critical one. You have a very sharp tongue, which may cause unhappiness to others. How could she know that? It's just a mechanical vending machine. You know, that's, that's all. Breaking my suspension of disbelief is Dan Zelinsky, the guy who maintains the upkeep of antique arcade machines at the Musée Mechanique, overlooking San Francisco's Ocean Beach. Mechanical musical instruments and fortune tellers and strength testers and love tellers, things like photo booths and things like that. These machines, some of which are well over 100 years old, can get quite complicated. The Engelhart Orchestrion packs a complete orchestra inside its cabinet, performing all the instruments for a full rendition of old-time classics. With its inner workings behind glass, you can see the brain behind the one-man band. But it's not a brain. You see the perforations on that piano roll there? Yeah, I see that. Each per- perforation turns something on and off. It goes over that brass tracker bar. There's 80 different... While Dan describes the hypnotic inner workings of the orchestrion, the music seems more canned, soulless. What might have been a machine intelligently creating music is rendered a feat of basic mechanical engineering. Part of the machine's entertainment comes from watching the music. I want people to see how things work because that's what's most interesting. It's not just the performance of what it can do, but how it's doing it is what's fascinating, especially by today's standards where everything is computerized. You can open a computer and you won't see how it works. You open up anything here and the naked eye can see exactly how it works, whether you know what you're looking at or not. You can see it working. And that is a a fascinating element of mechanics. Today, they might be called quaint, but 300 years ago, machines like the orchestrion were the pinnacles of technical achievement. In the 1700s, ambitious and inventive clockmakers sought to make machines that could mimic human characteristics. Called automata, they were mechanical ornaments for the very rich that could set the table, play music, even act like a duck. Jacques Valkenson, for example, created a sensational automaton in 1737 that could play a flute by breathing and fingering the holes of the instrument. Author Tom Standage writes about historical technology. Faucon's automata, uh, his flute player, was regarded as so amazing by some people that they thought it had to be a trick. And so he actually had to uh, open up the inside so that the, the uh, scientists of Paris could have a look inside and verify that, yes, this was indeed a genuine automaton. So even, in, even at that stage, which is the 1730s, automata are already more complicated than most people are, are capable of understanding. Um, And once you're in that position, uh, people's ability to judge what is and is not possible uh, with a machine is problematic. Standage is the author of The Turk, the life and times of the famous 18th century chess-playing machine. The Turk was, like Valkinson's flute player and automaton, created by Austrian Wolfgang von Kemplin in 1770, the Turk reigned as the supreme automaton for a hundred years. It played chess. If you talk today about somebody being a mindless automaton, um, you mean they're doing the same thing over and over again without changing. And of course, that's what most automata did. And the amazing thing about the chess player was that it was interactive. It responded to its opponent's moves. So I think the reason that Kemplin built it was that there were all these automata that imitated different aspects of um, human nature. And he thought, well, what's the ultimate human quality? It's the ability to think. And so an automaton that appeared to be able to think would just, you know, would just knock everyone's socks off. It would be the best possible automaton. A mechanical object that could think? And think so well as to best the best chess players of the age? 
The Turk had its believers and its skeptics, but even the skeptics were fans. As it turns out, it was, in fact, a hoax. Nobody was able to definitively prove it till much later, but there was indeed a clever person crouched inside the Turk's cabinet, hidden behind some authentic-looking machinery. So let's jump ahead a few hundred years. In the 1950s, there was a philosopher named Alan Turing who developed the famous Turing test designed to suss out artificial intelligence against the real McCoy. It goes like this. A computer and a person are hidden behind their respective curtains. After asking both a series of questions, if you can't tell the computer from the person, the computer passes the test, and it's intelligent. Along with this test, Turing developed a mathematical chess game on paper, that was designed to equate chess moves rather than think about them. Now let's jump ahead a little more. In 1996, IBM developed Deep Blue, a computer that could supposedly think, and did in fact beat world chess champion Garry Kasparov. The reason I'm interested in the Turk is that it lets us trace attitudes towards thinking machines. What's very amusing, though, is that um, by the 1950s, when electronic computers show up and computer scientists start making um, chess programs, uh, in order to compare computer intelligence with human intelligence. And then Turing proposes the Turing test. We end up in the situation where the best yardstick for intelligence is all about trickery and playing games and imitating humans. And that's exactly what the Turk was. Back in 1769, it was a trick and imitated a human and played a game. And um, so the hilarious thing is that, that having um, had 200 years to think about this, uh, we're right back where we started. And this is, this is I think, uh, Kempelin's great achievement, whether deliberately or not. He accidentally stumbled on what the computer scientists of the 20th century would later conclude on their own. Now, the Turk was a bit of a hoax, but it did seem to inspire people to actually go out and make complicated machinery things, yeah. um, the automatic loom, and maybe most notably Charles Babbage, who went on to create a mechanical adding machine. Exactly. I can't prove it, but I think that the Turk helped inspire the power loom, a mechanical computer. Um, lots of people were trying to build power looms, automated weaving machines, in the 1780s, but um, nobody had really got it to work. And um, the man who finally patented the first power loom, Cartwright, um, did it after hearing about the Turk, and he remarked to one of his friends, if you can make a machine that plays chess, and I don't see why you can't make one that weaves. And then later on, Charles Babbage plays against the Turk twice in 1819. And it's a couple of years later that he starts thinking about whether machines can uh, perform logical reasoning and things like that. And I, I, I can't prove it, but I like to think that um, one of the things that led his thinking in that direction was that so many people at the time were saying, the Turk must be a trick, machines cannot perform logical operations. He saw no reason in theory why you couldn't build a machine that played chess. And now, of course, we know that he was right and that everybody else was wrong because there are machines today that do play chess. It's just their computers, not automata. Deep Blue and the Turing Test pose fundamental philosophical questions about the nature of thinking. Is thinking quantitative? Is it computational? In a sense, the high-powered computers are like the old Turk or the fortune tellers and canned orchestras at the Musée Mécanique. They don't threaten to rival human intelligence, but they do try. Therein might be the appeal to see one of our own machines mimic ourselves. And as scientists continue to mold doppelgangers out of nuts and bolts and motherboards, we're forced to think about what is essentially human. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Peter Crimmins.
Thanks a lot, Peter, for that very fascinating piece on the 19th century chess playing machine, The Turk. Well, you're listening to Brooklyn Grocks only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Coming up next, you can find out all the cool things you can do with EndNote. So stay tuned. Back to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, you were just listening to music by the Lowells, and they'll be playing tonight at the Gallia Club at 8 p.m. That's located at 2565 Mission Street, so definitely check them out. And speaking of other types of music, have you ever wondered if dolphins can communicate with humans? You can find out on this week's edition of Everyday Science. Ever wonder if dolphins can really talk to humans? The answer can be found in everyday science. Dolphins are among the world's best-loved marine creatures. Not only are they extremely intelligent and social, they can also learn and perform complex tasks. But can they actually chat with humans? Let's dive right into today's topic by visiting one of the most popular species, the bottlenose dolphin. There he is over there. Note that the sleek mammal is about 10 feet long and weighs almost 600 pounds. Wait, what's that? Hear that series of clicking noises? They're part of the dolphin's natural sonar system called echolocation. The clicking noise is sent out through the melon, which is a lens-shaped organ just below the blowhole on his head. When the clicks bounce off an underwater object, in this case, us, some of the sound is reflected back and received by the dolphin through an area at the rear of the lower jaw, where it's then transmitted to the inner ear. By listening to those echoes, the dolphin can figure out our location, our size, and our approximate speed. Listen, there's another sound dolphins make. It's unique to each dolphin and called a signature whistle. It comes from nasal sacs located below the blowhole and may express emotions like alarm or excitement. But whatever he's feeling, and despite the fact that he's able to make several different noises that sometimes sound like human words, 
our friend can really only communicate with other dolphins, like his buddies over there. Well, I'd say today's show went swimmingly. Thanks for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's national education program, making science make sense. Wow, do you think she can talk to dolphins? I think she can talk to anybody she wants to. She's got such charisma, that yes, Everyday Science lady. That voice. The voice. Oh, geez, the voice. Dolphins would come flocking to her. Yeah, i got to use those flippers, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and on this week's tech update, we're reviewing EndNote. EndNote, yes. Our Have you heard of it? I, I use it uh, regularly, in fact. Oh, me too. It's, uh, it's great for uh, organizing your endnotes. Uh huh. <laughs> your references. <laughs> Surprisingly, I thought it was going to be a, a game or something. But yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. So I guess it's all it's useful for all those people writing their thesis and reports right now, huh? Right, right. It's it's, it's a beautiful thing for organizing blog, bibliographies and things like uh-huh. that. Uh, apparently, the claim you can put up to thirty-two thousand references. Thirty-two thousand. Yeah. Well, my my advisor has at least that much in terms of his bibliography. Really? But he just keeps the same one, right? And then he uses it for all of his papers, so it's it's useful. Yeah. Well, the other program that I've been using is a reference manager. Uh-huh. It's more for Windows. Uh, right. And it's more for Macs. Right. Um, that one works pretty well, except I I don't like the interface very much. Uh-huh. It just seems kind of unwieldy. Right. Just too much clutter. Right. Well, I know it seems it's pretty uh pretty wieldy, I think, and it. It works quite well. Right. Well, one thing I really like about it is the uh, internet search feature. Sure, sure. Have you done that where you can type in the author's name and it'll like search for you and then you can select what you like? Right. Well, uh, I guess for a lot of the things I do is hook up to, you know, whatever, web database. Web of science or something? Yeah, and it'll download the reference straight to your, your right. thing. And so it's already formatted and everything. So, and, and the review copy we have is the uh, recent version 6.0. 6.0 for Six, OS ten. Right. And so they just sent that one out and that one has a lot nice uh, upgraded features. Yeah, nice interface. Yeah. So... Uh, uh, certainly recommended, I think. For uh-huh. And now it's available at the ASUC store for the low price of $199. And if you're a student, bring your ID and you get for discount of $109. Uh, you can also check out the website, www.endnote.com, or the Apple store, www.apple.com. I think they sent us some press material with that, but do we pay attention to that? <laughs> I, I don't really know. <laughs> Good stuff. All right, and now it's time for the craziest question's answer to last week's question of the week. Hey, what makes rubber so stretchy? Hey, it's stretchy and it's rubbery and it's so rubbery, rubbery, I don't understand how it works. Well, if you look really, really closely, I mean really closely, you'll see that rubber is composed of all these polymeric forms. It's like all these little crazy little weedy things that are like these molecules. They're polymers. They're polymers that are right next to each other and you stretch them, you stretch them. They move right next to each other, but there's such elasticity and like stretching that when you release it, it comes right back to the high lower energy state and that is why the rubber is so rubbery and this week's question of the week what makes tigers more endangered than your typical endangered species if you know the answer or just think you know the answer you can email us at grox at hotmail.com you won't win anything but you might just have the eye of the tiger and that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Brian Gerke. And I'm Franklin. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie.